pray for just a second. Father, thanks for the truth of your word. God, it is the, it's eternal, and every little bit of it reveals more of yourself, brings freedom into our lives. Lord, ultimately, your son, the Lord Jesus, was the word spoken or the word revealed to us. And I pray that as we look at a portion of your word this morning, Jesus becomes clearer and the grace and truth that he brought into this world and into our lives becomes truer and clearer. Father, for those who may not yet know you, I just pray that your spirit is making Christ more real. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Guys, this is, uh, for me, this is sort of a difficult teaching. It's information heavy, and I'm going to sort of rely on my manuscript this morning in a way I usually don't. That means that I won't have as much eye contact with you. So I'm going to assume that your eyes are open, that you're not falling asleep, as I stay sort of focused on this paper. The other thing is, frankly, if I get off script, I'm going to go way too long this morning. So for both of our benefits, I'm going to stay close to my manuscript. Many of you probably remember Judge Roy Moore of Alabama. Uh, He made headlines for almost a decade from the mid-1990s up until about 2003. And he made headlines because he wanted to post a copy of the Ten Commandments in his courtroom there in Alabama. Later, as the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, he had a, uh, a granite replica of the Ten Commandments made and installed in the rotunda of the Judiciary Center there in Alabama. And he was called to account. He was sued by the ACLU and others saying that this was, a, uh, this was religion being introduced by the government. This went against the Constitution, the Amendment, the First Amendment. So he battled this out in court, and he lost. And he uh, was removed summarily by the Judiciary Committee in Alabama as the Chief Justice of their Supreme Court, He said afterwards he had no regrets whatsoever. He'd do the same thing again. And in fact, part of his defense was he quoted the Alabama Constitution, which he said, like the United States government, was based on the law, the Ten Commandments, and the Old Testament. But he didn't win. He lost. He lost that case. Uh, The Ten Commandments, and as I refer to them this morning, probably call them the Ten Words. That would be the literal translation for what they're often called the Decalogue, used to reflect a consensus in the West, you know, the place where Christianity had spread. It was a basic set of operating instructions which a clear majority of at least people in the United States agreed. Uh, The founders of the United States were not all professing Christians, but by and large, they believed that the ten words were a basic set of operating instructions that both private citizens and the government should aspire to. Uh, The reformers from Europe and the folks that came from their theological circles that settled here believed that the ten words were the basis for law and culture as well as for personal piety. They believed there were three functions related to the law. The first was to maintain order in society. And then after that, convict us of sin or drive us to Christ and then spur us towards obedience. Those three were the key functions the Reformers understood the ten words to be. 
the view that the Ten Commandments should carry any public policy weight today, though, is frightening to many people in the United States. Uh, The thought of this or any nation being subject to a religious code and mass is to be robustly avoided. In fact, the religious right in America, if you've read the news lines over the last several years, has been compared to the Muslim clerics, the radical variety, who advocate Sharia law as the norm for the nations in which Muslims have a majority at least. Uh, Today, in the wider culture, the past views on God and morality have changed. The Christianity that was the common ground of the Puritans and the generations that succeeded them has faded. We have become a multicultural society, arguably lacking the kind of moral consensus that had been the historic norm. So, for you and I today, what do we make of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words? Public policy aside, what do you and I, as followers of Christ, make of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words today? As Christians living under the New Covenant instituted in Jesus' blood, what is our relationship to the Ten Words or to the Ten Commandments? This is week one in an 11-week series called The Ten Words. This is just the introduction. It takes a while to introduce something of this scope and size. Uh, I start this with a a little bit of trepidation for a couple of reasons. The first is this. The ten words are uh, hugely important, both symbolically and really, because the truths they touch are so big, so vital, so far-spreading, the implications are wide. And so there's a lot of ground to cover, and by no means will we do justice over the next few months as we look at them. That's one point of trepidation. The other is this. Uh, This church has great diversity of theological background. And so it is pretty much a given I will offend one or all sometime in the next few months when I talk about the ten words. So I just lay that out there right at the front to say, if you find you disagree with something I say, would you do me a favor? Would you marshal the scriptures that you believe point to a truth that I'm failing to cover? And would you let me know? Seriously, in all seriousness. Okay? So i just throw that out there right at the beginning. Also, related to this point um, about diversity, we hope as a church that we aspire to the kind of nobility that you read about in Acts 17, so that when Paul and Silas were going from city to city, they, they preached the truth, but it said of the Bereans that they were more noble than the groups that they'd preached to before. And the reason they were called noble was they listened to what Paul and Silas said, but then they went home and they searched the Scriptures to see if what they heard lined up with the Scriptures they had in their hands. And that's all I would ask of us, too. As a church, one of our major, major emphases or focus is that as individuals, we're committed to knowing the truth of the Scriptures because we believe... The Spirit of God uses the truth of the Scriptures to transform us. That is our bottom line. So hopefully you'll hear that again in the several weeks that follow here. Let me briefly introduce, before I get into the text, uh, I'm going to read a good chunk of Exodus 19 and 20. And so bear with me as I do that. Let me just set the context for that, though. You remember in Genesis, God had called this guy from Ur of the Chaldees, Abram and his wife Sarah, some of their household, And he said, go to the land, I'll show you. 
And they went up, they followed the Fertile Crescent, came down into what we call the land of promise, modern day Israel. Abraham and Sarah finally have a child, and he has a child. And in Jacob's days, as time has gone on, there's a famine in the land. And Jacob and about 70 people leave the land of promise. They go down into Egypt, where Jacob's son Joseph had become the second in power to the Pharaoh there. And the nation of Egypt becomes, as it were, a, a, uh, a womb for this nascent nation, about 70 people. But the years roll by, and that 70 becomes multitudes and millions. And the Pharaoh comes up and says, you know, I'm threatened by this number of people, this nation within our nation. And so he abuses them and treats them harshly. And it says, Abraham's descendants there in Egypt, they cry out to God for a deliverer. And God sends them Moses, sends them a deliverer in Moses. And you remember Moses and Aaron go to Egypt, they go to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's not willing, but God performs these ten signs or miracles, the last, the death of the firstborn. And then, boy, the Egyptians kick Israel out. And they go out into the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. And that's where we pick up today in Exodus 19. If you have a Bible, I'm reading from the New American Standard. You can read along with me. Exodus 19. I want, by the way, I just want you to have the context for the ten words. This is the context in which they're set. That's important. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Skipping down to verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain And a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder... Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up 
By the way, this is one of the most graphically compelling passages in all the Bible. Going to Exodus 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw, they trembled and stood at a distance then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. I'm going to skip down to a couple other passages. Exodus 31.18 says, When he, that is God, had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Then, if you remember, there's a little incident while Moses is on the mountain. The people are breaking most of the commandments. They've just agreed to obey. They've made a golden calf. Moses comes down from the mountain, smashes the tablets of stone, the ten words, the ten commandments, destroys the bull idol, and goes back up to the mountain. Exodus 34, 1 says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Then last, Exodus 40, verses 20 and 21. Then he took the testimony, put it into the ark. This would be the tablets with the ten words. Attached the poles to the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark, he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That last, 
the Ark of the Covenant was that chest-like box covered with gold that had poles that were used to carry it around. And that was the box, the Ark, that sat in the Holy of Holies inside the tent when Israel was in the wilderness. Later, that's the same box that sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. So, that's the ten words in context. So, what are the ten words? The, the Ten Commandments, though we tend to isolate them in our own mind, they're really the preamble or they're the introduction to the covenant God made with Israel on Sinai through Moses by the blood of bulls and goats. The Ten Commandments do not stand on their own. Though God singularly wrote them with his own finger and though they were put in the Ark of the Covenant, they are part, they are in the introduction, they are the preamble to all of the covenant that God made with Israel. And what you see in this process is Moses is the mediator between God and between the people. And in this mediating role, he goes back and forth between God and Israel. So initially, God says to Israel, will you make a covenant with me? They say, we will. He says, okay, here's the first 10 words. They say, we'll obey. Moses goes back and he gets the rest of the covenant. And when you read the rest of Exodus, most of Leviticus, and most of Deuteronomy, you're reading more of that covenant. So the ten words, these laws, the ten commandments, are the preamble or they are the introduction to the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai. They're not all of it, but they're the first part. By the way, this covenant is often compared by theologians and commentators to what's called a suzerain vassal covenant or treaty. And that's where a high king would make a covenant with a lesser king or nation. And that's what this, this covenant with Israel looks like. We have lots of records, by the way, of what covenants look like in that day. This is what it looks like. The high king making a covenant with a lesser king or a lesser entity. So, then what's a covenant, by the way? Covenant comes from the Hebrew bereath, and that means to cut or to cut and eat. And it seems like there's a couple reasons for this. One is this. You can go back to Genesis 15 and you can see a covenant God makes with Abraham. And when he does, he tells Abraham, cut these animal carcasses in half. And God walks in the, in the visage or the picture of a flame of fire. God walks between the pieces of the animal, those pieces that have been cut up. And when a covenant was made, that was typical. It was as if the signers to the covenant were saying, may this happen to us if we fail to keep the covenant, this formal agreement that stipulates what our relationship is, what I'll do for you and what you'll do for me. And if I fail to keep the covenant, the covenant stipulates what the punishment is. And if you fail to keep the covenant, the covenant stipulates what's going to follow on that also. Also, it was typical when a covenant was made that they ate together. So an animal would be cut and they would eat. That was typical when a covenant was made. And in fact, you see that here in Exodus 24, verses 5 through 8, same thing. There it says, they offered, Israel offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, 
All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Same thing. The peace offerings typically were consumed by those who gave them. So the ten words are part of a greater list of requirements in which God told the nation of Israel what they must do. And God told the nation of what he would do for them. By the way, we won't get into this today, probably won't get into this, this series, but if you go to Deuteronomy 28 through 30, you see this laid down very, very clearly. God says, if you do these things I've commanded you, these are the ways I will bless you. And if you don't do these things I've commanded you, these are the ways in which I'll curse you. Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Now, when you read the passage in Exodus, it doesn't... There's no verses there in the original, of course. They're not numbered. The commandments are not numbered. But we know there's ten commandments because the Scripture says in Exodus 34, 28 and two times in Deuteronomy that there's ten commands. Now, historically, there's disagreement on how to parse these up. So if you come from a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic background, you probably are aware that the first part of the passage is joined together so that have no other God before me and make no idols is considered one command. Roman Catholic and Lutheran tradition. If you come from a Protestant tradition, generally, those first two statements are separated. Have no God is one command. No idols, that's the second. And then the last statements are combined to say, don't covet your neighbor's house or anything else. And as we work through these in the next several weeks or months, we'll follow the Protestant. We'll treat uh, have no gods and make no idols as two separate commands. The, The ten words break down into groups into about three categories. So if you look at them broadly, commands one through three talk about having right relationships with God himself. The fourth command has to do with uh, either worshiping God appropriately or our use of time, offering God our time appropriately. And then commands 5 through 10 have to do with having right relationships with other people, others around us. They were on stone, of course, the text says. You know, stone or clay in those days, that was the standard writing medium. They didn't have paper back then. And stone and clay was also something that would last a long time. Now, we know the first set was destroyed. The second set was put in the ark. It says that they were written on front and on back. And we're not sure what this means. Here's two options. Usually, if you made a covenant, just like if someone signs a contract today, each party has a copy. It might be that writing on front and back, that each set of the tablet was separate. All ten commands on one side, all ten commands on the other. One's for God, one's for Israel. Or it could just be that they're all ten and it takes the front and back of both sides to put them. We don't know. We also have no idea what happened to these. Uh, Israel and Jerusalem were ransacked multiple times. The temple in Jerusalem was ransacked multiple times. And the scriptures and history don't have anything to say about where's the Ark of the Covenant or where are the stone tablets written on by the finger of God. We simply don't know. So... The Ten Commands are a summary or a preamble or an introduction to the covenant God made with Israel there at Sinai. 
Temporary covenant, conditional covenant with that nation. Now, to the point this morning, are you and I called to keep the Ten Commandments today? Are you and I called to keep the Ten Commandments today? How many have I already offended? Just in asking the question. You know, if you ask Christians this, most of them are like, what do you mean? Of course we keep the Ten Commandments. And it's not quite as simple a question. It's not quite as simple an answer as that. And we hear, everyone here this morning, of course we don't keep the Ten Commandments. We've been through this before, right? We're not keeping the Fourth Commandment right now, are we? Because we're not keeping the Sabbath. So we don't keep the Ten Commandments. We don't at least keep one of them for starters, right? In answering this question, it's a little bit uh, more complex than yes or no, and so I'm going to answer this out of both sides of my mouth, if you will. Uh, Do we keep the Ten Commandments today? Are Christians called to keep the Ten Commandments today? On one hand, no, we are not. And on the other hand, yes, we are. And let let me start with the no, we are not. To the degree that the Ten Words are part of a covenant God made with the nation of Israel, we are not called to keep the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. It's part of a covenant. It was a conditional covenant with Israel and Yahweh. It's been superseded, by the way, by a new second covenant. Hebrews is one of the key passages in the New Testament. If you want to read about this, Hebrews develops the thoughts on this. But the old covenant, even if you wanted to keep it, it's not in force anymore. It's been superseded by the new covenant, the second covenant made by Jesus in his blood for both Jews and Gentiles. And that's the covenant that we live under today. Anyone in a relationship with God today lives under the second covenant because it's the only one in force. So to the degree that the ten words are part of a conditional covenant made with Israel at Sinai through Moses by the blood of bulls and goats, you can't keep it because it's not in force. The ten words are part of that covenant. Now, generally what you find in the New Testament is that God's love and grace have replaced the law. When you read in the New Testament, usually the covenant is called the law. Or if it's the ten words, it's the law. If it's the covenant, generally it's the law. So if you read in John 1.17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Romans 13.8, He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law in the highest sense, what the law pointed to. Paul says in Romans, if you love your neighbor, you're actually doing what the law talked about. Or Romans 13.10, love is the fulfillment of the law, not the particulars of the law, the spirit or the essence of the law. Galatians 5.13 says, Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers. And he's talking about life under this new covenant. Called to freedom. But don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So our goal today is not to keep a set of external commands, but it's to respond to the Spirit's leading in faith. Also, understand that if you believe you're called to live under the Ten Commandments as a covenant, you're actually called to live under all the covenant, not pieces that you and I might pick out for ourselves. Paul makes it clear, if we break the covenant in one point, we've broken it in all. He talked about circumcision in Galatians. He says, guys, if you think you must be circumcised because the law requires it, then you must keep all the law. So, This covenant is not enforced today. You couldn't enter it if you wanted to. 
the ten words are the preamble to that covenant, and that covenant has beyond any dispute been set aside as the New Covenant makes, as the New Testament makes clear. I think your study sheet has a few of these references on there. Romans six fourteen, you're not under the law, you're under grace now. Romans seven four, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Romans seven six, we've been released from the law. We've died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. Galatians 3.25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor or under the law. By the way, we touched on this topic, uh, the old versus the new, last year, April 11th, I believe, 2011, 2 Corinthians 3, a passage there. You can reference that if you'd like more information on it. So, are Christians called to keep the Ten Commandments today? On one hand, we say no in the sense that they are part of that old covenant that's been superseded by the new covenant made in Jesus' blood. That's one answer. The other side is this. Are we called to keep the Ten Words? Well, yes, we are. In that, the Ten Words continue to communicate God's mind and character in key areas of life dealing with moral issues. The truth is that much of what is codified in the law, whether the ten words or the rest of the covenant God made with Israel, those things were true before the covenant was made. They were true when the covenant was made. They were true after the covenant ceased to be in operation. Let me give you a couple of examples. The prohibitions in the Old Testament, a few that preceded the law we know, I'll just give you three here, the fifth command to honor your parents was broken in Genesis 9 when Ham dishonored his father Noah and was cursed by Noah for it. He dishonored his parent and was cursed for it. The sixth command, don't murder. You see in Genesis 4 when Cain murders his brother Abel, God curses him. Or you see later in Genesis 9, post-flood, God institutes capital punishment for murder. Murder was not right before it was codified in the ten words at Sinai. It was never right. Or the tenth, don't covet. You see in Genesis 19, when Lot's family is being driven out of the city of Sodom, God's going to rain down in judgment on, Lot's wife looks back. In fact, in the text it's clear, her heart went back. She coveted her life in Sodom, and she's judged. You know, she's turned into a pillar of salt. So in the Old Testament, before the ten words were codified in that covenant, these things were still true. I'm the only God there is. Have no other gods before me. That was always true. Don't murder. That was always the case. Don't lie. Always the case. When you get to the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount that Kent's been teaching through, you see that Jesus takes elements of the law and he maximizes them. You know, you have heard it said, don't covet or don't lust. But I say, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already done it. So in the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus doesn't annul them. He says, wow, those truths, they don't even tell the half of it. Because even if you don't commit the sin externally, if it's in your mind and your heart, you're still doing it. You also see these um, summarized by Jesus when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's the essence, he says. 
of that first covenant, of the ten words. And last, these are all restated throughout the New Testament. The ten words are all restated throughout the New Testament. So, while the first covenant was set aside by the new covenant, the statements of moral truth remain unchanged and as valid today as they were then. Romans 7.12 says, The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Those statements of truth, true before, true then, true now. So you and I can sing with as much gusto today as the psalmist did 2,500 years ago or so. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Or Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law. That's still true for us today, just as it was for them. There's an old adage that says not all Scripture is written to us, but all Scripture is written for us. And that is certainly true in spades of the ten words. Or if you think of 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Certainly true of the ten words as well. The call to obey these Old Covenant commands is at a very basic level no different than the commands we obey under the New Covenant. For instance, one passage, if you go to Ephesians 4, you're told as a Christian under the New Covenant, don't lie, don't steal, don't sin in anger. It's statements very much right out of the same framework as the Ten Words. It's a series of don'ts, prohibitions, under the New Covenant. This is not the way we're called to live, Paul says there. Obedience to the commands is meant to free us from slavery to sin and the fruit of sin, which is death, to give us more of what God means us to have, which is life. And let me just pause for one second here. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, just hear this. The prohibitions, the commands God gives us to keep, they're for our welfare, So if God says don't do something, that's like a fence that keeps us from falling off the cliff or falling into a hole. God's not minimizing the amount of fun we can have in life. He's maximizing the call to life. Because this is a sin-cursed world and sin always brings death, God says that when you love me and you obey me, you're going to find life. You're going to find more life. So for you and I as Christians, when we're speaking to ourselves or speaking to each other, if we're speaking to someone else in the culture around us, prohibitions are not a bad thing. If the command's given as a prohibition, it's a good thing. It preserves us from death. And the God we serve and love says He's the God of life. And qualitatively, He wants us to have life. And Jesus says in John 10, life abundantly, not a little, a lot. So for us, when we think of commands that God says, obey me here, don't do that, or do this, obey, heed this commandment, keep this word, this rule. Understand, these are rules that bring about life. And in fact, even in the giving of this old covenant, God said, I would that they had a heart to fear me because if they do adequately, they'll obey and they'll get life. I'll be free to bless them. God's after life. So for us to keep the commandments of God, the moral commands, whether they're the ten words, whether they're reiterated in the New Testament, this is for our benefit. This is not a small-minded God keeping us from having fun. 
This is a God who knows all things and wants us to have more of His kind of life, lots of it, and He knows that by avoiding some things we get more life, and by doing some other things we get more life. So that really is the bottom line. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. When we break God's commands, when we refuse to obey the things He said do or don't do, we get sin. We're not free, we're slaves. We're slaves of sin. In Romans 8, 13, Paul makes it clear, if I walk in sin, I experience death. If I walk by the Spirit, though, I experience life. So whether it's the ten words or the reiteration of them in the New Testament, or other commands in the New Testament, they're all meant for life. Not a small-minded God, they're meant for life. Further also, obedience to God's command is the language of love according to the New Testament. If I told my wife I loved her, and I do, but... Uh, I didn't, uh, let's say, pay for our house, uh, didn't provide her the basics of life, uh, I don't know, didn't, didn't do any of the things that for her would be meaningful, she might say at some point, don't tell me that you love me, because it's meaningless. It's just words, and they're empty. Well, in the New Testament, that same thing rings, rings true, because Jesus says, guys, if you love me, this is what you'll do. You'll obey my commands. That's out of John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. So let's not kid ourselves. If we're not obeying what God has called us to, we're not loving God. We're dissing Him. We're going to get sin, we're going to get death, but we're not loving God. To love God, Jesus says, is to obey Him. You can't get around this. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commands. That's how we love God. Do I love the Lord? You know, I'm kidding myself if I say I love Him, but I'm not obeying Him. Don't love Him. It's that simple. One is the other. So while we don't keep the ten words as those living under the old covenant, we do want to keep them in the highest and best sense since they continue to communicate unchanging truth about God and His good desires for our lives And our obedience to God's commands are the primary way we communicate our love for Him. And my plan over the next several weeks or a few months, however long it takes us, uh, is that each week we'll take one command, we'll illustrate it with a story from the Scripture, and we'll see how the New Testament treats that same subject. So a biblical illustration and how the New Testament treats that same subject. You know, even a verse like, you shall not commit adultery. You know, a few short words, but there's a lot behind every one of those. So we'll have our plates full for sure. Uh, The use of the ten words as a basis for public policy, I think, will become more difficult even than it is now, especially to promote so over time. But their use as those in relationship with God through faith in Christ remains unchanged. The ten words continue to reveal the will and character of God and continue to inspire us to live up to the high call of Jesus Christ in the power of His Spirit. I'm excited about these ten words, and I hope you will be too, week by week. It's easy. You can, you'll know right where we're going, you know, each week to the other. So we'll jump into those the next time I teach, I believe next week. 
Let me close with this uh, four verses out of Romans 8, 1 through 4. Uh, the law was good, guys, but it wasn't enough. The law was good, but it wasn't enough. Not because it had a problem, but because we had a problem. God had to do something bigger than start that old covenant. He had to give us a new covenant. He had to, had to institute a covenant of His grace through a son, or we'd still be in trouble. So this is what Paul says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, all the law could do to us was condemn us because we're sinners and we sin. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You and I live in the days of grace, under the new covenant, under the Spirit's role, so that those commands of God do not become burdensome, but the Spirit calls us up, transforms us into the image of Christ, and by God's grace, in the power of the Spirit, we've passed out of the law that could only condemn us into this new age of God's love, spirit, and grace, all brought to us by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Father, thanks that you did away with the covenant that could only curse and condemn us. Thanks that we live in this age of grace, the new covenant. Lord, thanks that your truth is always true and that the things that would have blessed Israel a couple thousand years ago bless us today. Lord, the things that would curse your people Israel there with Moses at Sinai. They would curse us today too. And I ask for all of us, Lord, that you'd help us to walk in the freedom that is your grace. Lord, that you'd help us to pay attention to the things you command us to do or to refrain from, to honor you and to experience the abundant life you mean for us here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.